This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peace Tree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3, we're looking this morning at verses 1 through 12. Moses, of course, had been born, protected from the edict of Pharaoh that the Hebrew boys should be put to death. But then uh, later in life has to flee Egypt, goes into the wilderness of Midian, where he found a home for himself uh, in the home of Jethro uh, and uh, was married, had children, and found what seemed to be his life's calling, herding sheep. Pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked. Behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Let's pray. Father, open to our eyes, to our ears, the Word of God. Give, us to a, give to us, Father, your Holy Spirit, that we might discern those things, those truths that you have for us to learn here. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Often the momentous things that happen in our lives occur as we're simply doing what we're supposed to be doing, as we are simply going about the daily activities of our lives. And that's exactly what happened with Moses when he happened to see that strange flame there in the wilderness. Moses was about 40 years old when he had to flee Egypt, and he went to Midian, uh, to Ruel, also known as Jethro, priest of Midian, and uh, fell in with his family and managed to marry one of his daughters, Zipporah, there. And we leave Moses for just a moment in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, and go back to God himself, where God for the first time enters the picture, and we see what is uh, what's really going on there. But Moses doesn't know that. We know that. The reader, Moses wrote this for us after the fact, but at this point, Moses is simply being part of Jethro's family. He has the flock out that day, obviously, after all this time, has become a trusted member of the family. That flock of sheep was kind of their uh, IRA, uh, they're Roth out wandering around in the wilderness. That was their financial security. Moses had charge of it, and he's leading the flock. Uh, and he happens to go, verse 1 tells us, to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, Horeb is uh, sometimes taken as sort of an equivalent for Sinai. If there's a difference, Sinai may be the particular peak that we know about from Exodus 19 and 20, you know, where the Ten Commandments were given, where Horeb may have been a little bit more of the general area, although sometimes the the two are used as here more or less interchangeably. And it's significant that the place where God first comes to Moses is that place where he he will later meet with Israel after they have come out of Egypt But it all begins in that same location, right here uh, at Horeb, when Moses takes his flock out and goes to the west side of the wilderness and is there in Horeb, down in the southern end of the Sinai Peninsula. Now, you really do see here the principle that Jesus taught lived out, you know, in in the parable of the talents, that he who is faithful with little will be put in charge over much. There's a lesson, of course, right there, isn't there? That we should be faithful in those things that God has given us to do. Uh, I remember someone once said, always do what you do well. You never know when someone may be measuring you for a larger position. Well, Moses was taking care of the sheep. Moses was doing what he did, and he was doing it well. It may not have been what he thought he would be doing as he was growing up in Pharaoh's court, Probably never aspired to uh, to lead sheep in the wilderness for 40 years, but that seems to be what God had for him, and that's what he was doing. Of course, he had no idea that the rest of Exodus was going to happen. To him, this was it. This was his life. Leading sheep, then he was doing it, and he was faithful in it. But it's in that faithfulness, being in charge of something relatively small, obscure, unknown, that God was about to put Moses in charge of something so immense that we still study and talk about it today. Well, Moses encounters this fire. We read in verse 2 that it was the angel of the Lord who appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of the bush. Now, 
that expression, the angel of the Lord, occurs in a number of places in Scripture. Often, as here, it is used synonymously with the Lord himself. As later on, it says the Lord himself spoke to Moses. Of course, God is himself invisible. God is a spirit, right? Has not a body like man. But perhaps this reference to the angel of the Lord is a reference to the visible manifestation of God, making himself visible in this case in the form of this flame, although sometimes he seems to appear in the form of a human being. Uh, but here in the form of this flame, revealing himself, making himself known to Moses. Well, what gets Moses' attention is he's out there in the wilderness as he sees this, this bush that is burning. He's looking at it, and the bush doesn't seem to be consumed. It's not going the way of things that are on fire. It's still there. It's apparently unharmed. It's not being consumed by this flame. The bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, well, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned? Now, you would think that's obvious, and it spells it out. But the point is that this got Moses' attention. Moses knew the wilderness. This, this was not a, an unfamiliar place to him. And this is something new, something different, something mysterious. And Moses says, well, I'm going to investigate this. I want to check this out and see what's going aside. And so verse 4, when the Lord saw, he turned aside to see. God called to him out of the bush. And he said, Moses, Moses called his name. Moses said, here I am. Now, as we look at this encounter, there are three things particularly about God we want to notice and what takes place in this conversation. And, of course, it continues on in this chapter, as you know. We'll, Lord willing, look at the rest of the chapter next time. But for today, just three truths about God that he reveals about himself out of this burning bush as he speaks to Moses. The first thing that we see and learn about God here is the holiness of God. Holiness of God. You see this in really beginning uh, in verse 5 and 6. Calls to Moses. Moses says, here I am. And the Lord says, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Holy, why? Not because it's Mount Horeb or Sinai. In fact, it's interesting in terms of Israel's experience later, after you know, they meet God there in Exodus 19, 20, Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments are given. Later, when God leads them into the Promised Land, that's well to the south of, of Israel. And that and geographically, Sinai has very little to do with Israel's history from then on out. There's very little reference made to it other than the law given at Sinai in connection with the law, yes. But geographically, the place does not have much significance for Israel afterward. What made it holy was not that it was Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. What made it holy is God was there. He was in the presence of God. He says, where you are standing is holy ground, and so take the sandals off your feet. Well, Why? Well, it could be that uh, he used to do it for the very same reason that people might take their shoes off entering a house today. And that is just to leave the dirt outside. 
Are you coming into the presence of God, and here you've been walking around you know, in this, this wilderness? Take your sandals off as you stand in the presence of God. But the point is, this, this holiness that's there, and even the fire itself points to the holiness of God. It's worth noting that the main events of Exodus, uh, from, from Exodus chapter 3 on through Exodus chapter 19 and 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments, and you probably know that the rest of Exodus is taken up with giving the law and then the instructions for the building of the tabernacle, uh, that fire plays an important role in the book of Exodus, beginning with this burning bush, and then where God comes to meet with Israel as a whole after they've come out of Egypt, this, this great pillar of, of fire and smoke that comes down on Mount Sinai signifying the presence of God, and even to the end of the book where God takes up residence in the temple, the tabernacle uh, that they had built, and there's the, the glory of God, this, this radiance that, that fills the place as God is present. Throughout Exodus, fire and this, this light is, is significant for the presence of God. And in other places in Scripture, Deuteronomy, we read, and it's picked up again in, in Hebrews, that our God is a consuming fire. Now, fire can be comforting on the one hand. It, it, it warms, it, it purifies, and fire certainly is a symbol for God, indicates purity. But fire can also be dangerous if it's not handled carefully. Remember Nadab and Abihu who offered strange fire, unauthorized sacrifice to the Lord in Leviticus 10. And what happens? The fire, the presence of God comes out and consumes them. And so God is not to be approached carelessly, lightly, glibly, but with the utmost reverence. And regard, the Lord says, don't come nearer, Moses. Take your sandals off your feet because you're standing on holy ground as he comes to investigate. And the bush is not being consumed. This fire burns in and of itself. It's not reliant upon that bush, which points to the self-sufficiency, the self-maintaining nature of God. God is not dependent on that bush. He's not dependent on anything or anyone. He exists in and of himself. He is perfectly happy and satisfied in and of himself. And although it's a somewhat obscure point, we need to recognize that, that the presence of God is this fire in this bush, not burning the bush, indicates that God is that blazing fire, is not dependent on that bush for its existence, for his presence. All of this, the holiness, the separateness of God, he is distinct from us. He is the creator. We are the, creature. We are the creatures. Sometimes God is, is said to be holy other. That's, a, that's an uncomfortable term. We are made in the image of God. He is not wholly different from us. We are made in his image. There, there's aspects of us that reflect his being, his character. So in some ways, we are like him. He's not completely and absolutely different from us. But he is distinct. He is holy. He is set apart from us. He is the creator, we are the creature, and now, of course, he is sinless and we are sinful. He is the redeemer and we are the redeemed. We never forget that there is that distinction between us and God. The holiness of God, 
We need to remember that. We need to have a sense of that. The call to worship earlier spoke of, of being in awe of God, standing in awe of Him, praising Him, worshiping Him, standing in awe of this one who is God. And we see that here as the Lord appears to Moses in a bush. He doesn't show up, put his arm around Moses and say, hey, buddy, pal, how's it going? He says, Moses, take off your sandals because you don't approach me carelessly. You don't approach me in your sin. You don't approach me as though this is just some common encounter. The holiness of God. Second thing that we notice here is the knowledge of God. Look at verse 7. Notice what the Lord says. And this merely picks up from the end of chapter 2, where it reflects on the people suffering, they're, they're groaning, they cry for rescue from slavery to God. And verse 24 says, God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. That's literally what it says. It doesn't say what he knew. It just says God knew. Because it must have seemed to them that God didn't know. Here we are, you know, children of the covenant, languishing away in slavery in a foreign land. What is going on here? Does God even know? Does he care? Yes, God knew. We've talked about that. Sometimes it may seem otherwise, but God saw them and God knew. And now God himself spells it out. Look at verse 7. Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who were in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. Land flowing with milk and honey, place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, and so on. What does God say? He himself firsthand says, yes, I know their sufferings, I know their afflictions, and now I have come to deliver them. Why not before? Why make them go through centuries of suffering? Why have Israelites who were born, lived, suffered, and died in slavery, who never saw the deliverance of God on earth? Well, a number of reasons, uh, one of which, one is just the, the purpose and plan of God. Uh, there's another, though, that uh, Scripture indicates, and it has to do with the wickedness of the people in those lands, the very ones that are named here, Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, that their wickedness had not reached its full measure. And in fact, as you know, of course, with their 40 years wandering in the wilderness because of their unbelief, even more time went by before the people came in under Joshua and destroyed these people, most of them. Not as much as they were supposed to in some cases. Why? Well, because not only was God giving Israel the promised land, God was using Israel as his instrument of judgment on the wickedness of those pagan peoples in those lands who did some of the most horrific and horrible and vile things imaginable. So Israel was God's means of judgment. And one of the reasons for the delay was certainly the purposes of God. But as he says, their wickedness had not yet reached its full measure. You see, Israel's time in Egypt was in a sense his patience with the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and all of those. And yet in the fullness of their wickedness, then God brought Israel in to judge them. So that's one reason, and certainly just the general purposes of God are another. Why they stayed in, in, in Egypt for so long. But now it was time. And God said, no, he's not unaware. He knows their suffering. He knows their affliction. And he's not, 
hardened to it or calloused toward it. He said, I know their sufferings. He's not unsympathetic. But now the right time has come, and he's about to act, and he's going to use Moses to do it. Uh, And Moses is, in many ways, a most reluctant deliverer. Uh, And there's something attractive about that, about his humility, about his self-doubt. And yet, echoing what, what Paul would say so many centuries later, that in our weakness, in his weakness, God's strength is made perfect. And we see that in Moses. And so that leads into the third thing we learn here, not just the holiness of God, the knowledge of God, of his people, and what's going on, but also the presence of God. Look at uh, verse 10. Verse 10. The Lord says to Moses, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses says, Well, who... Who am I to go to Pharaoh and bring them out of Egypt? You know, my career is sheep herder in Midian. That's that's what I do. Who am I? Well, you know, the whole book of Exodus has given us some some indication who Moses is that makes him uniquely qualified to do what God has called him to do. But Moses senses what an immense task this is and how humanly impossible it is. But notice what the Lord says in verse 12. But I will be with you. That's God's answer. That's the only answer. Moses says, who am I to do this? And God says, but I will be with you. I mean, it goes on, but that's really the reason. He says, I'll be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you are here worshiping God on this mountain with all Israel. That's the sign. That's the proof. You know, when you're here. But the only reason, the only answer God gives, the only reason he gives uh, to Moses' question, who am I to do this, is, but I will be with you. And is that not answer enough? You know, God calls us to do things that can be very difficult to our, our jobs, our callings in the home, being parents. All of these different things, I mean, students in school, and you may hit things. You think, I can't do this. But God is with you. It's just he was with Moses. Now, there was a unique relationship there, to be sure, but the presence uh, of God is, is true, not just for Moses, but for all of his people. He says to each one of you and to us as a whole, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am with you. And that's his answer here to Moses. And so we start out with the holiness of God, take off your sandals, and that should always be in in our minds as we approach God. But we also go to the knowledge of God that he knows us. He knows his people. He knows our sufferings. He certainly knows our joys. He knows our circumstances. He's not oblivious to where you are, to what's going on in your life right now. But then he also draws near, I will be with you. You know, the holiness indicates that distance the mysteriousness, the scariness of God. But we've gone from that in God's grace to certainly his knowledge of us and then to his presence with us. God is both our Father which art in heaven, high and exalted, and he is our Father who's with us, who loves us, who cares about us. He's the God who's with us, the God who is for us. 
as he demonstrates in sending Jesus into the world, a Savior greater than Moses, to give himself for us, God himself in the flesh. Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist minister, preacher, uh, London in the 1800s, once pleaded with his congregation. He said, Sinner, tell God your misery even now, and he will hear your story. He is willing to listen even to that sad and wretched tale of yours about multiplied transgressions, your hardness of heart, your rejections of Christ. Tell him all. He will hear it. Tell him what you want, what large mercy, what great forgiveness. Just lay your whole case before him. Do not hesitate for a single moment. He will hear it. He will be attentive to the voice of your cry. This God in all his holiness, this God with all of his knowledge, is the God who has promised to be with us, and in Christ Jesus is with us, and in Christ Jesus is for us. Will he really hear us? Will he really care about us? Will he really be with us, protect us, strengthen us? Well, the answer is no farther away than this table. The proof is in this table that we're about to come to. The proof that God is for us is in the cross. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage and for what it reveals to us of you, your holiness, your knowledge, your presence. Father, we thank you that you desire your people to draw near to you and that you draw near to us. Father, we see just the beginnings of that here and this conversation with Moses from a burning bush. And yet, Lord, as we go through Scripture, that eventually it was not the bush that was burning, but it was Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh, here with us who spoke to his people. Father, we thank you for the grace that is here. We praise you and we are in awe of you. We thank you, Lord, that while you are a God who is majestic to an awesome degree, that you are also a father who loves and is with and has compassion on his children. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.